Hello, this is Glenda Taylor. Welcome to this third in a series of podcasts that has been exploring a variety of perspectives concerning human consciousness, particularly as related to gender identity, inclusivity, psychological wholeness, and other important topics. In the last podcast, I spoke in part about the need to distinguish between biological sex, male-female, and gender identity, masculine-feminine, or otherwise, and about changing attitudes toward all of that. Also, in the last podcast, I promised to share with you this time some personal stories, hoping they may add to all the other points of view we've been accumulating in these podcast. So, here I go. I dreamed one night years ago that I was walking in a crowd of people through a sort of fairground when I looked down to notice to my horror, just barely visible in the dried and dusty well-trampled ground underfoot, the face of a living woman. All I could see was her face, She was otherwise completely buried. I recall vividly, even all these years later, the shock and pain I felt in that dream when I realized I'd almost stepped on her face and that others had been walking right over her as she was looking up at me. The feeling was overwhelming and urgent that she needed to be rescued unearthed, given back her life. It was back in the early 1970s when I had this dream, and when I first encountered a term, archetypal feminine, when it was used by a Jungian analyst about my dream. I told my analyst I wasn't sure what that term meant, and he replied that hardly anyone in our culture understood what it meant. Of course, by now, anyone can Google the term archetypal feminine and bring up literally thousands of entries with a variety of definitions. But who cares, though, really, today? As Lauren Carisco, a Jungian analyst, writes online, and I quote, From Me Too to the trial of Larry Nasser, to the rising refusal of young adults to be defined as either male or female, opting instead for the more neutral pronoun they, evidence of profound change is all around us, End quote. So, why would I want to discuss the word feminine? Well, <laughs> current events, just yesterday as it happens, make me realize that despite all changes, what has also been called the patriarchy still has plenty of power over female lives, over the conditions of the earth herself, and over the values associated with what my analysts call the archetypal feminine that he said hardly anyone understood despite the fact that everyone certainly used the term feminine to describe women in certain ways, and 
women are even now, even yesterday, being defined by cultural decisions and definitions of their appropriate attitudes and roles. So, with that dream of the buried living woman who was being trampled underfoot in the mainstream fairground, my dream maker back then had given me a challenge and a curiosity and I was hooked. And it feels especially important to share that today. For the next many years, I spent time and energy and devotion, I have to say, uncovering for myself the deep, even ancient meanings of those words, archetypal feminine. And this was at a time, mind you, when the word feminine itself was already becoming suspect among women's livers, including me, as we were generally working for equal treatment under the law, equal pay for equal work, or even equal opportunities to work at certain occupations and other important issues concerning women. But I came to realize that we women were all sort of working blind, existing blind, really, without awareness of an essential backstory, a full history of what the roles and descriptions that women were expected to fit into, being feminine, meant in other times and other cultures, what women were capable of and what they had been respected for in other times and in other cultures, different from what they were in my own time. Interestingly enough, it was in the art section of the University of California San Diego Library that I first found both image and history that opened a pathway of discovery for me, a pathway that led ultimately through archaeology, anthropology, mythology, and spirituality, let alone psychology, and my own psyche in particular. What I discovered in all those years was that Femininity had not always been what it was advertised to be by the culture I grew up in. For example, I read in my then-current Webster's Dictionary that feminine meant womanly and soft, weak, modest, receptive instead of assertive, and passive. That was what it meant to be womanly. I certainly couldn't match that description of womanly with either history or spirituality or mythology. For example, in the ancient stories of the fierce warrior goddess woman, Athena, for example, or the sexually passionate and flagrantly promiscuous goddess of beauty, Aphrodite, or with the ancient Hindu goddess Kali, or the Mesoamerican Coatlake with their necklaces of human skulls, death's heads draped around their bodies, their beautiful female bodies. Nor did it match one African goddess image I found, shown with an axe in one hand and a child in the other. None of these images of womanhood seemed weak or passive or submissive at all any more than did some of the revered female figures in the Hebrew scriptures, one who cunningly and successfully took off with their heads and 
changed history to Saber Nation. Nor did it match with some saints in the Christian canon, or even descriptions of sturdy and courageous and competent pioneer women on the American continent at one time. But in the 1970s, all women were supposed to fit a sweet and frilly pink standard, as my granddaughter now refers to it, of femininity. We did have options, of course. We could instead be seen as a mm, seductress, a whore, a witch, a ball buster, a bitch, an uppity broad, and so forth. But none of those were thought of as feminine. I have now a whole set of books entitled Uppity Women of the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages or whenever, detailing numberless accounts of women whom Webster would not have classified as feminine. And so I came to realize that my own culture, like most other Western cultures, had so limited what could be considered feminine that it had become a gross misrepresentation of the full archetypal possibilities we all carry within us. In short, I was realizing that that the definition of what is, quote, feminine is a culturally determined construct that other cultures had often seen it as almost the opposite of the way it was now defined. And by then it was clear to me that the term archetypal feminine meant something so much deeper than femininity as a a nice shade of lipstick or a pink dress or a receptive attitude or whatever. I was a young wife with two small children back then, and I loved feeling beautiful or motherly or any of those other feminine ways. But I also loved to express my intellect or my managerial or, or analytical gifts. I was told once in a remark meant to be complimentary that I wrote like a man. (laughs) The person who said that had obviously not heard of the well-revered ancient Egyptian goddess Sashat, goddess of reading, writing, arithmetic, architecture, and measurement in the ancient Egyptian dynastic period of 2613 before Common Era. Wrote like a man, indeed. (laughs) By then I had come to understand that the woman in my dream, buried and trampled but alive, was an image of an archetype. I understood the term archetype to mean a psychological layer of human consciousness, deep within any and all of us, a level of consciousness that, like instinct on a physical level, has been laid down by the experiences of humans over hundreds of thousands of years. Here are three definitions from an online medical dictionary now of the word archetype. Archetypes are, quote, based on the life experiences of all of the members of the human race and representing the wisdom of the ages. Archetypes are modes of thought, and patterns of reaction, and archetypes are contained in the unconscious of each and every individual. Archetypes also appear in personified or symbolized form in dreams and visions 
and in mythology, legends, religion, fairy tales, and art. End quote. Archetypes contained in the unconscious of each and every individual are tendencies toward certain patterns of thought and reaction that hold the wisdom of the ages. Hmm. That was from a website called the Online Medical Dictionary. And so archetypal feminine would be the wisdom of the ages about what it means to be, quote, feminine, present in all people, the dictionary says, males as well as females. The wisdom of the ages, not what the current cultural definition of feminine is. It was a medical doctor, Carl Jung, who popularized this term, archetype, many years ago. Carl Jung was, of course, a man of his times, and to be sure, many of his ideas are outdated and even by today's standard sexist. But despite this, Gary Taub, a Jungian analyst, recently wrote, quote, I have concluded through my experience over the past many years that Jung's ideas are both relevant and outdated, both relevant to today and our needs today, and outdated. If Taub is right, and I think he is, it's important to retain what is relevant and useful while we challenge and update the rest, as our young people are doing, and as I was doing back in the 70s and 80s. An archetype is perhaps best called a psychological drive, or impulse, which is latent, like instinct, and when triggered, has an automatic reaction to behave in certain ways under certain circumstances. Instinct, for example, tells certain little creatures to freeze in place when the shadow of a hawk flies over, so as not to be discovered and eaten. These creatures don't have to be taught to do this. They are born with the potential for that instinctual reaction when triggered in the right way. Similarly, Every human has built-in psychological reaction potentials based on our human history that incline us to behave in certain psychological ways in certain circumstances, whether we are men or women. Hmm. So back in the 1970s, I was learning that an archetype is more deeply ingrained in the psyche than is a transient, limiting cultural definition like the then-current definition of femininity. And the archetype is a drive more powerful than our normal ego state of consciousness. My own analyst said that the archetypes are like the gods and goddesses within us, ready to act when the occasion presents itself, just as instincts are when they take us over. These archetypes are laid down so deep within us that it's hard for any of us to comprehend their depth or their powers. <laughs> As was said of the inscription over the entrance of the temple of the ancient Egyptian goddess Neth, that read, quote, No one has lifted the veil that covers me. <laughs> None of us has uncovered the possibilities of all the psychological drives that are embedded within us. So, in short, what has been 
called the archetypal feminine, is a particular cluster of drives or patterns of behavior grouped together and given a name. A cluster of psychological drives that are available to us all in potential just because we're human. But those ancient drives within us get filtered through our own personal history, experiences, family, and cultural history, and so forth. Filtered. Again, same with instincts. I was told by a guide at the San Diego Zoo that those same little creatures that freeze when a hawk flies over, reacting appropriately under the circumstances, will also freeze when the shadow of an airplane flies over with the same shadow shape as the hawk shape, the instinct is triggered inappropriately. So too with psychological archetypes. Archetypal drives when triggered are sometimes appropriate and healthy. Sometimes they're triggered inappropriately in unhealthy and even dangerous ways. There are a whole variety of mythological goddesses, for example, one for every occasion. And you best know which one to draw on and which one to keep in her temple inside of your consciousness in reserve, so to speak. There are always two ways of thinking about any archetype, in good order or not, depending on the circumstances at hand. All of that I was learning as I was searching the various meanings of the words archetypal feminine. What I was discovering was that while what could be termed the archetypal feminine was in fact a collection of patterns of behavior that was extraordinarily important, it had for a long time been skewed and wrongly associated merely with the female sex to the disadvantage of both men and women. I was realizing the limiting impact on females of the artificial merging of the terms woman and feminine, or male and masculine for that matter. And it was becoming more and more clear to me that the confusion between sex and gender, between the physical identity, man or woman, and any cultural construct about what is feminine or masculine, and having those specific roles assigned to us by gender was damaging not only to women, but to men as well. Back in the 70s, men started demanding the freedom, for example, to own their own intuitive awareness. What had long been women's intuition was finally claimed as human intuition. Men began to show affection more easily, even to hug one another, however awkwardly, to be tender, to be receptive, all of those things that had been identified formally with being feminine and only fit for women. Like everyone else during that time, I was learning a lot and changing a lot. So, eventually, deep into my studies, (laughs) I created a two-hour slideshow with images of the various ways the feminine archetype shows up. I wrote up and gave various talks about these universities, churches, psychological gatherings. This was before internet use was widespread, and so 
and old-fashioned photo slides were my tools, and I hauled around with me a slide projector that I said grace over every time, hoping it would work properly and not jam up on me. At first, women were the main people who were interested, for obvious reasons. So I spoke to nuns and to other church groups, to a now convention in Los Angeles, to a conservative Jewish women's circle, social groups, chambers of commerce, and anyone else who was interested. And a wide variety of people proved to be interested, including a Catholic priest who was struggling with the whole notion of celibacy, manhood, and gender roles. It was also approached by one individual who quietly declared herself to be androgynous, a term not commonly in use in that day and time, when the term transgender was little in use either. This led me to give a workshop still back in the 70s on the subject of psychological androgyny at a time when the term gender fluidity was not in common use either. But I was also heard by Jungian societies. Someone from the Jung Institute in Los Angeles attended one of my talks and saw the slides and contacted me and asked if they could house my slideshow there at the Institute. But I knew my work was incomplete and I was still working on it, so I declined. I also gave a, a whole variety of workshops on many of the varied aspects of the ancient archetypal feminine prototypes, and some of these, incidentally, these legacy workshops, you'll find on the website now, oneandallwisdom.com, by the way, with more to come. But during that time, in the early 1970s, I also attended and recorded a series of talks given by a friend of mine, and I transcribed and edited the tapes of his workshops, and I turned those edited transcripts into manuscript form. And so I helped to see published for the first time Robert Johnson's book, She, and then He. Robert and I debated the meaning of the archetypal feminine back and forth. He focused, for example, on the mythological Aphrodite's vanity and jealousy, as well as Psyche's helplessness and need to be rescued by unconscious forces. <laughs> I agreed with some of the things Robert said. But I disagreed strongly with other things. Robert was a wonderful, generous, open-hearted man, but he was a man of his times, as he freely admitted, as Carl Jung was, when he was speaking of the archetypal feminine in his day. Jung was surrounded by intelligent, professional women who also often challenged his views and wrote books with their own findings. So I wrote a book myself. When my friend Robert Johnson read my manuscript, he told me encouragingly that it drastically changed his view of the archetypal feminine and that it should be published. I sent my manuscript off over the transom to Harper's and Row publishers who kept it for many months through three readings by their editorial staff. And then they told me that they were about to publish a book on the same women's genre and wouldn't use mine. Shortly thereafter, Starhawk's groundbreaking book came out with the same editor at Harper's and Rose as had communicated with me. <laughs> Starhawk's book was different from mine, of course, but the publishers thought it close enough in genre to put them off publishing mine. 
So I stuck the manuscript back on my bookshelf. And then over time, as more and more people began to speak about what they call the ancient feminine, and as images of the ancient goddesses from all over the world, like some of those in my slideshow, began to appear on the newly available internet, I began to focus less exclusively on the feminine and women's liberation issues as I more and more tried to see wholeness in consciousness as the keystone and balance as the means, with balance between what was commonly called the feminine and the masculine principles as a goal. Lately, I have felt a calling within me to offer some elderly insight <laughs> to my granddaughter, for example, about a differentiation I think is essential today. We are indeed all human, each of us, with the full range of human possibilities, and we need not be, should not be, limited to any current cultural constructs called feminine or masculine but current cultural constructs and attitudes about what feminine and masculine means, that's something very different from more deeply embedded archetypal psychological drives laid down in us over hundreds of thousands of years. Powerful, important drives that are present alike in every human being, man and woman. Clusters of those drives grouped together were called by Jung and others the archetypal feminine. Other clusters of drives grouped together have been called the archetypal masculine. And these exist again in both males and females. And it's very important for them to be understood and not repressed in our culture. So, I think it's important for anyone working for change in contemporary attitudes toward gender to understand the difference between, on the one hand, blending everything together into one human gender or non-gender, or on the other hand, instead of blending things together, while still certainly emphasizing an overall wholeness and common human consciousness, Nonetheless, still differentiating within ourselves, each within our own psyches, the incredible variety and strength of inherited archetypal tendencies towards certain particular patterns of behavior and reaction, each operative under different circumstances, each powerful drives available to us, ways of being, ways of reacting, ways of understanding. Just as it's useful to distinguish oh, tomatoes from apples or lemons, although they're all classified as fruit, so that we can use them as needed and desired, we distinguish between them according to their distinctive characteristics. We can honor the ways all humans are similar, while each of us is free to draw upon one or another of certain archetypal drives as needed, according to the circumstances at hand, much in the way that ancient Greeks had temples for a variety of gods and goddesses, paying homage to all of them, but realizing how different they were one from the other. 
I'm not talking about our worshiping idols, of course, ancient gods and goddesses. I'm speaking in symbolic terms about patterns of potential behavior present within every one of us, male or female. So what then is the archetypal feminine in all of us, men and women, that I have been talking about? Well, I would say (laughs) briefly here what I've said at length in many other talks and posts and courses. I would say that these archetypal feminine drives pertain to, one, a type of unitive consciousness, a unitive consciousness, the uniting awareness of the wholeness of things I discussed in the first podcast in this series, a unitive consciousness in which relatedness and connection, relatedness and connection are naturally emphasized, in which it's realized that what happens to you invariably affects me too. What happens to the water and air matters to all of us, and so forth. This tendency toward connection extends as well to connection to the earth and nature. And three, this tendency toward relatedness and connection increases both intuition and emotional acuity and sensitivity. And four, this is all expressed in a down-to-earth, embodied, and yes, sensual, hands-on kind of way. All of this unitive consciousness can be contrasted with a type of consciousness that is differentiating, separating, abstracting, theorizing, intellectualizing, equally valuable but different, useful in certain circumstances in ways that unitive consciousness is not. In Jungian terms, that is called the archetypal masculine. And I'll talk about that in the next podcast, by the way, when I focus on the difference between the ancient positive behavior patterns and drives that fit into that category, the archetypal masculine, on the difference between that and the so-called patriarchy. And I'll talk about how things got so polarized and limited in regard to expectations of men and women's roles, how they became defined in such narrow ways and in such polarized ways, and I would say in such dangerous ways. And I encourage all of us in this very critical day and time in our culture, when so many people's opportunities for success, not just women, but people in rural areas, people in underprivileged and minority situations, people in all walks of life, when our opportunities can be so limited and our culture has become so polarized because of all the stresses that are bearing down upon us, I beg all of us to remember this concept of wholeness, this unitive consciousness, 
this archetypal feminine consciousness, if you will, that says that we all matter, that we hang together or we hang, we hang separately, we hang for sure if we do not hang together. I ask us to think seriously about that and hold each other close in our consciousness and in our prayers that the divisions and separations between us all will be healed and that we will remember again we are all one upon the body of Mother Earth. Thank you. This is Glenda Taylor, and I'll see you again next time.